Bitcoin, crypto bubbles, passive indexation. There's a lot of financial jargon out there. Old Mutual can help you make sense of it all and give you great advice to make the right decisions. If you've got a question or want to know how to get the most out of your money, call them on 0860 60 60 60 or speak to an old mutual financial advisor or your broker. Today's the day. Get great financial advice so you can do great things. Old Mutual is a licensed financial services provider. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702, your number one news and talk station. The Money Show brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. Well, coming up on The Money Show later, remember when Robert Mugabe fell from power and Nicholas Bauer was in Bramfontein? He was being thrown around like a cork being tossed in the ocean by celebrating Zimbabweans living in South Africa. And he was doing his reports and having a whale of a time. Well, just last weekend, he took a whole bunch of us on a walking tour. um, And he and his friend Mike, Luptak uh, took us on this wonderful walking tour of Hillbrow, took us into Ponty, told us the stories about Ponty, about the grandeur, the, the vision for Ponty in the early 1970s. If you lived in, the, in Ponty in the 70s, give us a shout at half past seven this evening and tell us about it. Was it grand? Um, it's, it's quite worn now, but certainly it's a lot better than it was 10 years ago. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll talk about how they are revamping people's perceptions of that part of town. And there's this big dream to create these beautiful walking corridors through town. And I know Maria Ramos is deeply passionate about it, connecting Transnet and APSA and um, and Standard Bank and just getting people walking in the inner city and living the life of an inner city life. It really is a lovely idea. So we brought to that. Andy Rice is here uh, with the Heroes and Zeros. We'll talk to the head of sustainability at Woolworths. I mean, the frustration you feel when you go to Woolworths and you, and you um, throw away the rubbish and the plastic bag that you bought your groceries in is as full as when you bought the stuff because of all the plastic inside it. And all of that's been going to landfill and there's a commitment from Woolworths today as to how they're going to deal with that. Your fast fact tonight on 31702 and 31567. Whose chief executive has quit amid speculation that he might be gearing up to run for the US presidency? There's a chief executive... He's resigned. Oh, yes, Norman McKechnie. Um, absolutely right. I'm glad you only mouthed it quietly. It is correct. Um, the chief executive of which company has quit him with speculation that he could be gearing up to run for the U.S. presidency, and that would be against the Donald if he's still in office and chooses to run again, of course. He'd go up against this guy, potentially. Um, he hasn't confirmed his intent yet, but he said kind of he's interested in political office. Show on 702. Your number one news and talk station. Horrible day for the market, horrible day for the economy, horrible day for you and me, frankly. And amongst all of the political hype and the thrills of dodging a full-scale downgrade to junk, you may or may not have noticed that the economy was having a horrible first quarter of 2018. We've seen the gradual upgrading of growth forecasts in recent months, but the first quarter is the worst in about nine years. The economy contracted by 2.2% the first quarterly contraction in a year and the worst quarterly contraction in nine years. The Rand weekend yields on benchmark bonds rose. Retail and banking shares fell and fell sharply. Gulam Bellum is the group chief economist at Standard Bank. Lots of commentary today about how this casts a pall on the Ramaphosa administration, but people simply don't understand that it's not the Ramaphosa administration that made the, the first quarter, the first quarter con, uh, contraction here, Gulam. 
Sure, Bruce, but you're being a little bit sophisticated. I guess most people who, on a surface analysis, say uh, Mr. Ramaphosa ascended to the helm of the party on the 20th of December, became state president in the middle of February. And, of course, as you say, the first quarter reflects one of the weakest performances in decades. But you are also correct in suggesting that the optimism that had earlier gripped South Africa seemed to have faded. But I think what it really reflects is a misunderstanding of the channels of transmission and also the lag. So what I'm basically saying is that we must condition ourselves to recognizing that the Ramaphosa dynamic will have possibly two phases. The first phase will be political stabilization. And it has largely revolved around personnel changes at key institutions from government, state-owned entities, and even SARS for that matter. That, that political stabilization will in turn yield governance and growth dividends. And I think that will become more forceful in the latter half of this year and most meaningfully in investment. Uh, and that's, yeah, that, that is the key point. I mean, you don't turn around an oil tanker in 30 seconds. It takes an awful lot of time and an awful lot of planning in order to do it. And he's put the building blocks in place for future growth. Um, but I, I look at this, uh, this is an opportunity as well, Gulam. and tell me if I'm being a little bit Pollyanna-ish here. But when I see a horrible number like a, a, a contraction of 2.2%, it sends the very, very clearest signal ever to a new administration that it needs to do things differently in the future to the way in which they've done, been done in the past. So firstly, I, I think just maybe stacking the data a little bit more meaningfully, um, there's a great deal of cyclical shock in the numbers, and by cyclical we mean it's near term, it won't be enduring, it won't be lasting. So for example, when in 2017 we had quite vibrant agricultural production um, on the back of a revival, as I say, following the drought conditions in the preceding year in 2016. And so in 2018 we know that agriculture won't be as lively, there won't be that level of verve. Admittedly, it pronounced decline in Q1, but it also means that you won't have a similar pronounced decline in Q2. In other words, it will smooth out. So I suspect that, yes, it galvanizes the minds. It does uh, make a sense of urgency. In a sense, business markets will ultimately respond to favorable incoming data. It's helpful that we look for and we're a little bit startled to galvanize us. So I, I can subscribe to your psychological thesis. Yeah, I mean, we've, it's the biggest quarterly drop since 2009. It's not a pretty picture. Agriculture did terribly. Mining fell. We're getting a new mining charter. Manufacturing uh, fell 6.5%. Construction fell 2%. I mean, it's, 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 it was a, a torrid quarter. How does it affect full-year growth? You talk about full-year growth beginning to recover in the second half of the year. But do we get to the levels of 2% which people up until today have been forecasting we might actually be able to reach this year? So 2% annual growth for this year may have just slipped away. I think the range of possibility will be between 1.6% and 1.8%. You highlight, for instance, that we've had contraction in six out of the 10 sectors in our economy. Um, and just uh, you also spoke about mining. Um, but just to highlight, for example, why we can avoid looking uh, through the rearview mirror as it is going to not necessarily cast an enduring fall, if you consider, for example, there's already lively discussions and more constructive discussions with respect to the mining charter. Also, the utilities or, you know, call it electricity, that sector also saw shrunk output. But we also know there has been a more than $3 billion signing for renewables energy production. So that suggests, you know, a short to medium term kicker in terms of construction and also a more longer term kicker in terms of available energy supply. So, again, and perhaps I am being repetitive, 
the rearview mirror does seem some, somewhat startling, but already there has been a policy recalibration mm. that suggests if we look through the, the windshield, the front windshield, um, we'll see some acceleration. And I would say between 1.6 and 1.8% growth this year, but I would remain wedded to the notion that quite possibly we could grow by around 2.3% in 2019. Adrian Saville at Canon Asset Managers pointing out today that South Africa's gone nowhere economically for 10 years. And he says it's of far greater concern than any short-term number. The fact is that South Africa's population growth rate of 1.5% a year comfortably exceeds our economic growth. We're growing the number of people in the country faster than we're growing the economy. Therefore, gross domestic product per capita, each one of us feels poorer. And there's a good reason why we feel poorer, because we are poorer. So, look, I think uh, Adrian's being generous when he said we've gone nowhere. Um, I, in fact, think we have sunk. And by that, I mean a decade ago, our natural our trend, our natural athletic rate of performance was around 35 maybe 4%. During the Zuma years, it subsided to a natural rate of growth of between 1% and 1.5%. So, if anything, we destroyed our underlying potential. But that having said... I think we're now in a, in a process of recalibration, rebuilding that infrastructure and rebuilding structural growth momentum. And just to conclude, I guess, on your very correct, elegant and correct point about population growth being roughly 1.7%, that should be our minimum aspiration. The economy must grow at 1.7% or better because it is then only at that rate or above 1.7% that we're generating per capita GDP growth that is positive and that aside from being societally welcome is also one of the factors that the rating agencies look at when you have positive GDP per capita growth it puts you into the prism of enjoying possible upgrades and of course when your GDP per capita is shrinking that will likely send you in down the spiral or lock you into junk as we probably are. Good on Billam. Thank you. Uh, cell phone signal sadly going into junk, but we heard plenty. Uh, Group chief economist at Sanabank, Gulam Bellem, this evening. Yeah, the growth number, it was awful. The growth number for the last decade has been atrocious. Are we turning a corner? We certainly blimmin' hope so. The Money Show. The Markets. Norman McKechnie, Portfolio Manager at Momentum Asset Management, just showing him a video that is the subject of a conversation we're having just after Eyewitness News at, uh, at half past six this evening. And that is with a guy called Tim Brophy, who tried to submit a, 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 a claim to his insurance company, but the insurance company systems didn't accept the paperwork. So he then very tongue-in-cheek and very cleverly and very elegantly posted a little video using it looks like his kids cars to show what happened in the bumper bashing that he endured and said to discovery is this good enough guys so we'll talk to tim brophy about it now it's tongue-in-cheek it's a bit of fun uh norman mckechnie uh markets today getting themselves pummeled and bludgeoned it's uh, they certainly weren't expecting a horrible two and a nearly two and a quarter percent contraction in the in the economy it's like losing two and a half centimeters off your waist that would be a good thing it's not good in the markets yeah it certainly wasn't good in the markets uh uh, Bruce, yeah, I think it was. We, we were, were looking for a contraction, but not of this size. And I think, uh, uh, you know, clearly uh, that was taken as, as negative. Uh, and the, you saw the domestic stocks, particularly the banks, the retailers, coming under quite a bit of pressure as a consequence of that uh, surprise uh, number. Yeah, it was an ugly number. It was a surprise. Standard Bank down 4%, Capitec down sharply. Uh, all of Diskem, Barla World and Bidvest were down. Um, MTN was down today too, but possibly not related uh, to the negativity in the economy. They got themselves a little hawks raid uh, That's right. on Friday last week. 
Yes, they did. I mean, this isn't the first time that they've, well, it's certainly the first time I think they've had a raid here. Turkcell has been at them for quite some time with regard to the whole Iranian deal, which they felt was, uh, there was some underhand uh, uh, dealings there. This was 2005, and Turkcell right. says MTM paid bribes in order to win that's the Iran correct, yes. deal. That's the allegation which that's, MTM that's right. always denied. Now, this has gone to the courts, I think, four times, and they've been cleared four times. So, you know, clearly these guys haven't, uh, uh, you know, they haven't given up. Uh, I don't know whether it's because uh, if you look at Turkey and what the currency is doing, maybe uh, if Turkcell might have a lot of US dollar debt uh, and the currency is weakened by about 20% over the last sort of two months or so. Uh, but uh, no, I think seriously, uh, you know, clearly they think they've got a case and they've now got the hawks on it to try and find the the information which they clearly didn't have before uh, when they tried to uh, bring this to the court. There was a private citizen who was the chairman of MTN at the time, a, a young man called Cyril Ramaphosa. That's correct. I mean, one would hate to think that there's a political motive to this, but I don't think so. No doubt. Uh, because they, they've come for they've come for MTN several times on this. Yeah, they have. I think, you know, essentially, I don't know whether it's sour grapes or what the story is. I mean, clearly they wanted to make headway into Iran. Uh, it's obviously fairly close to their home territory. Uh, and probably would have made but good business sense. Uh, and uh, you know, uh, clearly there's been a- must be allegations that have been running around, and they you know have, haven't given up. They've continued to pursue this. The Hawks also arrived at the law firm Weber Wenzel on Friday and said, "We'd like some documents, please." And Weber Wenzel did what lawyers do and said, "No, it's private client information. Go away." Um, so there's a bit of a standoff there between Weber Wenzel and the Hawks. Uh, when when companies want to raise capital, there are lots of ways of doing it. That's right. One of the ways of doing it is through a thing called a rights issue. Right. And that is when a company says, okay, we've run out of money or we're running short of money or we need more money, we want to pay off some debt and we will issue some brand new shares to existing shareholders and we'll do it a bit cheaper than the the share prices at the moment and um, it's a really good thing when a, a rights issue is oversubscribed, it says existing shareholders are happy to have more. I think that's right. I think you know clearly you've got to look at the company that you that's undertaking a rights issue. I mean, often you know if a company's got too much debt, you've got to really question management. Why did they get themselves into the situation? I think uh, if you look back at a company that did particularly well uh, in terms of raising capital, not necessarily always, but the rights issue was Bidvest, and you go back to to Bidvest probably in the 1990s, and they made a number of acquisitions and they placed that with one particular pension fund, one investment manager who did particularly well out of that. Who was that? Uh, Gaston and Telm at uh, Standard Corporate uh, Merchant Bank or Standard uh, Merchant Bank. And so he was a great supporter of Joffe and, uh, uh, you know, clearly him and I think it was Adrian DeFay as well uh, supported that. They had the vision they saw and, and uh, you know, clearly the business still talks about that, which is uh, it's return on capital higher than cost of capital. And if that happens, you, you actually generate cash in the business. Uh, but often you have rights issues and what, you, what you've got is businesses that have taken on too much debt. Uh, one of those examples is probably Sun International, where they've just had a rights issue. Uh, currently, as we speak, we have an accelera- accelerated book build in Harmony. And they've got, uh, you know, clearly what normally happens with these gold companies, uh, they don't cover their cost of capital over the cycle. And uh, th- they've got uh, expansion plans, etc., which uh, Harmony does have. 
and they require capital uh, and they've come to the market to raise capital this evening. But essentially what a rights issue is, there's the difference between the rights issue and accelerated book build. Accelerated book build, you can literally, if your shareholders give you permission, you can go to the market, raise a capital. A rights issue requires all of the documentation. Uh, and you have uh, then the right, if you own the shares, to take mm. on further shares at the discount, as you mentioned earlier. Forgive me for being a cynic, but if the casino business was so good to its customers, surely if you're Sun International, you just go and play your own casinos and you win all that money, um, and that's your capital raising. But it doesn't work. No, like it doesn't business. work. That's why they're still in business. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, that's a warning to you. If if casino, if winning at the tables was, was, was as certain as you would are led to believe when you go gaming, um, then why does and go to Tsohosan and go and do that and, and take their money. And yeah, and that's absolutely them. right. I mean, gambling's a tax on people <laughs> who don't understand mathematics. There we go. It's a good line. I like that one, Norman McKechnie. I really do. Um, resources were strong today. Golds were strong today. And the market's really falling back in love with Richemont once again. They did an interesting deal yesterday um, buying a second-hand watch seller in the United Kingdom, um, sort of tying up the market nicely. And the market's quite fond of Richemont. Yeah, it is. I think there's a lot of... Uh, there again, they're a company that generate a lot of... Uh, of cash, uh, they their return on capital is well above the cost of capital. They have probably about thirteen billion odd uh, euro on the balance sheet. They bought uh, the a particular company, which is a second-hand uh, seller of watches. That's expensive watches. It's called watches of the world. Yeah, uh, that's right. Uh, and so you would buy your, your Rolexes or whatever uh, on that. And clearly, they've got Cartier and, and various other uh, watch brands. L M L V M H Louis. Louis Vuitton, Moet Hennessy. Uh, that's right, but that would be a competition. That, that they've got something, LMH or whatever it is, oh. that produces watches, but yeah, and Peugeot and whatever. So, you know, it's obviously a platform that they could probably uh, use. I mean, the, the sort of, uh, I think it's about 85 um, million, or, uh, the turnover is about 85 million pounds. They make profits of about five, and it's maybe another way of extending their, uh, their sales of their new watches uh, with the second-hand watches that get sold there. Norman McKechnie, as always, thank you very much. Portfolio Manager at Momentum Asset Management. Earlier on, I asked you whose CEO is to quit amid speculation that he might be gearing up for the U.S. presidency. It's a guy um, who I've been waiting for 10, 12 years to interview, and I was looking so forward to it. He wrote a book called Pour Your Heart Into It. And he's the founder of Starbucks, a guy called Howard Schultz. I go away, I take one long weekend out of 100. And Ray White stands in for me. And who does he get to interview but Howard Schultz? What a lemon cheek. But anyway, Howard Schultz announcing that he's stepping down from his jobs at uh, Starbucks on Monday. Now, after 40 years at, at Starbucks, he did take a break from being chief executive for a while and it went a bit pear-shaped. So he stayed on as chairman and chief executive, which is frowned upon in many parts of the world. But Starbucks has done well. It's, uh, he took over 11 stores in 1987. And now, what, it's got 28,000 stores, 77 countries, including some shops in South Africa as well. There has been speculation for several years that Howard Schultz has got some presidential ambitions. He acknowledged that he's got political ambitions recently in the New York Times. And, of course, in 2016, he endorsed Hillary Clinton for president, and she lost out to Donald Trump. He's been a very outspoken critic of Donald Trump. And if the Donald thinks that he should run again, if he's still in office by the time the next U.S. election comes around, if he hasn't pardoned himself out of a job, um, then you could very well see the biggest purveyor of coffee in the world going up against the biggest purveyor of kofefe in the world. The Money Show is brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. 
Good evening. Welcome to The Money Show. Andy Rice is here already, champing at the bit, ready to unleash himself on heroes and zeros. Claws being sharpened. We've got a couch outside the office, outside the studio, and he, it's torn down the side from Andy. He's sharpening his claws on a Tuesday night as he gets ready. And all of you, quiver in your boots, because is tonight the night that he picks on you and your brand and your advertising campaign? Or does he give you a hero? Yeah, it's going to pick on you. Uh, on the next Money Show, Tumisang Khabusele. He's the founder and chief executive of a bus company, Africa People Mover. He's our shapeshifter, former Bowman Gill and lawyer, chatting to us about how he went into the bus industry and is stealing the big bus company's lunch. He's a lawyer. He'll get out of trouble for that one. And Colin Cullis on Business Unusual, looking at the way Starbucks outgoing chairman turned a coffee shop into one of the most successful, socially conscious businesses this century. All of that coming up on the next Money Show. The Money Show on 702. Your number one news and talk station. So coming up in a little while, Feroz Kur, who is the head of sustainability at Woolworths. If you've been shopping at Woolworths recently, you know the amount of plastic that you end up throwing away once you've unpacked your groceries. And they've made an enormous commitment today um, to get rid of a lot of that plastic and to ensure that you don't have this problem two or three years from now. It's not like flicking a light switch, unfortunately. It's a lot more complicated. Don't you hate the admin when you've when you got an insurance claim? And you, you, it's, with insurance, like with anything else, there is a huge amount of admin that has to be done. And sometimes it feels like a deliberate ploy to deter you from making a claim. Forms and bureaucracy and the stress of making sure you get up each and every single fact absolutely right. Otherwise, you might get your claim repudiated. And often, the forms themselves are unintelligible. And so you sit there going... It could be any one of six answers. And you go, they're doing it on purpose. But anyway, Tim Brophy is a guy I spotted on social media today posting the most innovative insurance claim I have ever seen. Before we talk about the insurance claim, Tim Brophy, um, do tell us what you did. You, you went through the traditional channels with pen and paper and fax machine or internet and, and you couldn't get your claim through. Hey, Bruce. Yeah, well, so what I did was um, they sent me an email saying I needed to describe the incident, get a case number, and then send a sketch. Um, and it was a discovery insurance. And I was like, well, I can do most of the stuff on, on the app, but this is a little bit arcane for me. So I decided to do the video um, just as a, as a more innovative way of doing a, a claim sketch. I've done lots of those before. I did art in university and I just, uh, I'm not sure how, how seriously people take those things. But uh, so I sent the video through. Um, but their mail servers actually blocked the video. So oh, I see. Okay. I thought the mail servers blocked your original claim, and that's why you did the video. But I like the video. Nah. Describe the video to me, if you would, you being the creative type. Um, well, so my wife was, was um, somewhere and she left her car in the parking lot, um, and someone dinged her uh, from the, uh, into the back of her car. And she came out and, and, and there were some, some details that were left behind and things. So I, I basically um, just reenacted this using some cars. And I heard you say in the intro earlier on in, 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 on your show, I must have used my kids' cars. Well, the truth is I don't let my kids touch those ones because <laughs> those are mine. <laughs> oh, you have your own toy cars. These are wooden cars with very colorful wheels. Where, are they collector's pieces? What are they? Yeah, they're called Automa Blocks. Um, okay. I'm not sure where you get them. There's a couple of specialty shops here and there that keep them. I got them as a present one year. But um, they, they're my favorite, and my kids have played with them, but they've lost the wheels too many times, and I'm tired of lifting up couches. So, so but, but you, you park these things back-to-back -back as if they're in a car park and then filming yourself 
I can imagine you making the sounds, going vroom, vroom, boom, and, and reenacting the accident. I did, and that's why I put music over it, because I tried the first time around, it was terrible, because um, that had my, my sound effects. Um, yeah, so I just filmed the car, one of the cars reversing into another car, and then I did a slow-mo and action replay reverse angle, added some post-it note um, descriptions of Bang! bangs and, oh, no. oh, no, and, and yes. whatnot. But it was just meant to be a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek, um, light-hearted thing. Uh, but I didn't expect it to kind of get as much exposure as it did, I'll, I'll be honest. That's just a really novel way of doing something that is ordinarily so blooming boring. You've, you've, you've changed the game, potentially. Have you had a response from Discovery? Have they said, um, OK, here's <laughs> twice the claim for being an innovator? <laughs> so I haven't... I mean, it's been a little bit hectic, but I haven't seen on Twitter any kind of response from Discovery, but I have... I did see... I got a claim approval email... Um, and what I had to do after I got this, you know, the, ma the, the mail servers blocked your message because it could possibly contain a non-related work attached or non-related attached work-related attachment. Um, I had to like send it to this, you know, blocked at discovery.zza to get it released and I didn't hear a response back. So literally like about an hour ago, I got an email saying the claim had been approved. And I don't know if that was via social media or because right. of social media or just normal process. Well, let's find out, shall we? From Tim Brophy to Tim Babaloy, from one TB to another TB. Tim, have a listen to Tim Babaloy. He's Discovery Insure Executive Director. Have you seen the video, Timba? I saw the video. Uh, very creative. And, uh, he, uh, and Tim is right. There are issues with uh, video content in general because First of all, you take into account the legalities of whether it contains legal or illegal material. Secondly, uh, you also want to make sure that uh, you don't expose the business to inappropriate content. So it's a great idea. I mean, our team is obviously exploring ways of perhaps using vaults instead of uh, just using email, generic email to upload information. And so team is on the money here. So, I mean, would that, would that legally, in terms of your T's and C's, apply if somebody submitted a video like that in future? Would that be legitimate? I mean, I'm, it's easier to make a sketch, frankly. Um, but it's quite an innovative way of giving a 3D reflection to what happened in an accident. Is it acceptable or not acceptable as a legal, uh, as a legal document? From our side, I mean, we know that we're moving with the times and we are aware of the technological development. So from our perspective, it's absolutely acceptable as long as you can go through those uh, issues that have highlighted legalities and inappropriate content and making sure that our networks and our servers are safe. Um, so absolutely, there's no doubt Bruce, that we are going into a video content environment and we're moving into podcast environment in a big way. Uh, you, you can just see in terms of the money that is generated uh, out of advertising from sure. uh, podca podcast content and video content. Tim Oboloi, thank you. Discovery Insure Executive Director. Tim Brophy, you've got a new business line for yourself. You could do accidentrecreations.com or something. There's something there. <laughs> How long did it take you to make the video? Was it worthwhile? So I hope, I hope no one from work is listening, but I was on a conference call and it was one of these things that you listen into. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was about, I think it was 20 minutes. It was only on my phone. Uh, you know, okay. Yeah. The, the it, would be, it would have been quicker to do the sketch, wouldn't it? 
Uh, yeah, absolutely. But, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but then you wouldn't have got an interview on the radio and Timber Beloy wouldn't have said, hey, well done. So, hey, everyone's a winner. Tim Brophy, thank you. And Timber Beloy, thank you for being a Sport Discovery Insure Executive Director. An innovative way to tell your insurer what happened in the case of an accident. 702 and Cape Talk. The Money Show. Feroz Kur joins us now, the group head for sustainability at Woolworths. And I was telling you earlier about the horror stories that you have. As you go, I went to a landfill site the, idea, the other day, Feroz. Have you been to a landfill site recently and just seen the huge quantities of plastic and rubbish that litter the place? I have, Bruce, and that's part of the, that's the reason why we, we're moving this way and made these commitments today. I mean, for years, many, many uh, of uh, our listeners have been very critical about the amount of plastic that accompanies grocery purchases, especially from Woolworths, because you guys do pride yourselves on presentation and protecting the product. Um, but it has become, it's got to a point now for us where I think you acknowledge in quite a long press release that it simply can't be justified anymore to have these sorts of single-use plastics and other sort of the, the, the polystyrenes and other things that simply go into these landfills and, uh, and, and create a problem for generations to come. Yes, and, and that's, that's, I mean, the, the, the press release was lengthy because there were so many things to cover. I mean, this is such a, such a huge area and there's so much to do. And so, I mean, we identify that there's an issue and single-use plastics particularly are a huge problem. I mean, you use them once, but they, they just last forever. I, mean, I, I read a stat somewhere that said that every toothbrush you ever owned is still somewhere in the world, you know. I mean, that's a scary thing to contemplate. And so... We, we, we're embarking on this journey to, to address these problematic issues and work systematically through the business to, to address both the volume of the packaging and take out where it's unnecessary and also the type of packaging we use so that ultimately everything we do use is recyclable. You're committing to by 2022 that all your own brand plastic packaging will be reusable and recyclable but you've also in a very strong and unique position to put pressure on your own suppliers to also supply you product in similar packaging surely ultimately that's the idea um, bruce we want to ensure that everything in our store is recyclable i mean we, we're starting where we control and that's our own brand and especially in the food business i mean we have so much of our own brand product um, in store and we want to ensure that from a business perspective we we ensure that our commitment starts at home and, and then we started there but uh, absolutely, we will be engaging with our suppliers. And, and many of the global um, large uh, FMCG companies are, are making similar commitments uh, with our suppliers, and we will be talking to them appropriately as well. Uh, you, you talk about this requiring 100% recyclable materials. Explain the economics of this to me, because ultimately, you're not going to pay for it. Your customers are going to pay for it. Is this going to add an, an extra burden onto your customers? No, 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 that's not the point, Bruce. I think there's, there's, you know, when it comes to plastics, particularly, there are various polymers um, that are in use, and some are, are more recyclable than others. Um, uh, and the other thing is that sometimes, in order to, to package certain types of foods, you get compound packaging. So you get, you get plastic with foil on it, or you get paper and plastic combined. And the whole idea is to really look at these kind of things and say, how do we do this better? How do we keep the same food quality and and food safety and, and, and protect the food or the product while, while, uh, while using um, alternate packaging. And the idea is not to, to, to make it more expensive in any way, it's just to be more appropriate in the choice of packaging. And also to eradicate the, the sale and the distribution of plastic shopping bags. So um, the green bags that you, you sell, I think, what, 50, 55 cents each or whatever they cost now at the tills to say to your customers, terribly sorry, but we don't do those anymore. You need to bring your own bags or you can buy this Hessian sack or brown paper bag or whatever it might be in the future. 
Yeah, and, and so we've done a lot of customer research um, going into this before making our commitments to ensure that we're addressing the correct issues. And plastic bags has been something we've been hearing about a lot. And, um, and, and we've taken the decision to, to say, okay, uh, we hear your customer, we're going to, to um, phase them out. While customers have complained, the other thing that we've picked up is that a lot of um, significant behavior change is going to be required. You know, in South Africa, we're used to shopping in a particular way. We, we know if we go to the store, there's going to be bags there we can buy them for 50 or 60 cents. And we, that's how we, we shop. And we ultimately have to change the way we that entire way of shopping. And so the reason for the, for the phasing out process up to 2020 is to take our customers with us on this journey so that they make the right choices when they're in store. And, and part of doing that as well is to ensure that we have an appropriate range of bags for them so it doesn't become prohibitive to shop at Woolworths because the bags are too expensive, you know. So we want to ensure that the, the customers come with us on the journey and that we have the appropriate um, alternatives in store for them. You, you must target kids because kids are very good at making parents change their behaviors. I speak from personal experience. Make kids feel bad, they'll make their parents feel bad, and you'll get this, you'll achieve this really quickly. I mean, it's things like earbuds, those things made by Johnson & Johnson, those ones with the plastic bit in between. You, you're committing to replace those, for example, by October this year. And also the plastic straws, the plastic forks and knives that you, um, you give away at those little stations next to the microwaves if people have bought a microwave meal. Changing those to those dreadful but much more much greener wooden implements, for example, it's that sort of stuff which goes a long way, possibly, to address the scourge of plastic. It does, and those are the particularly the earbuds. Um, they, they just, I mean, when um, if you read the stats, they're, they're some of the worst uh, offenders when it comes to cleaning up at uh, um, beaches and so on. The stems of earbuds. So. What we've committed to is before the year is out that we'll no longer be selling any plastic stemmed earbuds. Uh, we won't be providing any plastic cutlery or, or straws in our stores. We've started already in our, in our new format uh, food store called Now Now in Cape Town, and we no longer provide plastic cutlery. They always, our cafes will, will have um, wooden cutlery and plastic, uh, paper straws by July. Um, the stores themselves will, will phase them out shortly thereafter. We don't sell plastic straws anymore. We haven't done for a long time. But it's these little things which, which make a big difference. These are the things that end up in the environment and, 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 and cause all the problems that they do. I remember pl- paper straws from the 1970s, and before you were halfway through your drink, the thing had collapsed and you had the soggy, chewy blech. I mean, yeah. have they improved at least the making of paper yeah, they, they're much They've improved much more than that. I mean, it, it will last the, le- the life of a drink in a little longer. I mean, because Woolworths for years has been talking about the good business journey and talking about how food is sourced and how farmers are helped and how the, the organic uh, sort of a, a path that Woolies has gone on. And there's always been that gap, and the gap has been packaging. When you look at 2022, which is just around the corner, as terrifying as that might be, um, what does the, I mean, compared to now, how much less plastic will Woolies be using, um, less single-use plastic perhaps, will Woolies be using than now? Well, I mean, look, from, from the type of things I mentioned, bags and, and then the small things we, we spoke about, we shouldn't be having any. Uh, in terms of the, 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 the packaging we do on food, I mean, that's part of the, the journey now, that the, the, the product team is really looking at the, the way food is packaged, um, uh, ensuring that the, the type of packaging is appropriate, it's not excessive, and so on. So it's, it's hard to quantify a number now, but we, we're hoping that it will be significantly less than it is at the moment.
Feroz Quir, thank you for joining us. The group head of sustainability at Woolworths. What do you make of that? It seems like a good and progressive step by Woolworths. Many of you will argue that it's far too late, um, that a lot of damage has been done already. But you don't implement the stuff overnight, and it does take a, a huge amount of work all the way through the supply chain of a business um, to to get the stuff going, and they're doing it. Um, and something as innocuous as an earbud, for example, one of those things that doctors tell you you shouldn't be sticking in your ears anyway. Uh, not only do you stick it in your ear, then you stick it in the bin, and that ends up in the landfill and ends up on the beach alongside the drinking straws and the plastic shopping bags and all of the other vulgar garbage that we throw away without second thought. Do yourself a favor. Go to a landfill site. Take your kids to a landfill site, and they will govern you afterwards, I promise you. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702, your number one news and talk station. Lee Kasumba with Africa, the host of Africa State of Mind with our Africa Business Focus. She joins us at about 20 past seven this evening. And then two guys, Nicholas Bauer, you know him from your television. Very tall. And his mate, Michael Luptak, they call him Loopy. they the co-founders of Dlala Nje. It's a company they started up when they were both living in Ponty, the big, tall, cylindrical concrete building built in the 1970s. Um, and I'll let them tell the stories about it. But it was built as luxury flats, triple-story penthouses. Very grand in its day, early 1970s. The vision was to have about 800 wealthy people living in this building. And at one point, there were some 10,000 people uh, living in this Ponty building as uh, Hilbra went through some very, very difficult and dark times. There's been a dramatic cleanup, not only of Ponty, but of, there's some streets in, in Hilbra which are marvellous. Alexandra Street in Hilbra, lovely street, lovely blocks of flats. Great rental incomes for the owners of those blocks who have committed very significantly to that part of Hilbra and have um, put in security and put in fingerprint access and uh, serviced the apartments and you talk to people who live in those apartments and they're very, very happy indeed and paying some pretty hefty rentals for the square meterage that you're getting. And people go, in Hilbra? But I'll let, I'll, I'll let Loopy and Nicholas Bauer tell us some tales about what it is um, li- li- you know, living living in Hilbra and promoting Hilbra. Andy Rice with our Heroes and Zeros this evening. You've got a Hilbra tale? Well, I've wondered whether you had read John Hunt's new book, which is called The Boy Who Kept a Swan in His Head. and it's John Hunt, the advertising guy? Yes, indeed. And he grew up in Hilbra in the late 60s. And uh, I lived in Hillbrow briefly in the 70s, um, but, but it's a really evocative narrative about, about Hillbrow, and it's, and it's really in its early days. The boy who kept... Kept a swan in his head. Okay, big yeah. head. And you only, the, the reason for that is only revealed in about the last chapter. Oh, so you've read all the way through, yes. which is very good, Andy, very committed of you. Now, listen, yep. um, let, let's do heroes and zeros. I want to start with... Um, but before we do that, isn't there a new movie... There is indeed. It's a fascinating movie. You should try and get to see it if you're, if you're Mabenengwe, where the bioscope is located. It's a movie called Pluck, uh, and it's a, if you like, a history of Nando's advertising. But it's more than that. It's, a, it's, an, it's an hour and a quarter documentary in the Encounters series, and it's really a, a look at the socio-political history of South Africa over the last 25 years through the lens of Nando's ads. And uh, on a superficial level, you're reminded how many great ads they've made over the years and how much fun they are. But when it's juxtaposed with the developments in the country that were um, at the same time, uh, you really realize that they, they were well woven into the fabric of the country. So it's, it's both in stimulating intellectually, but 
out and, and fabulously entertaining. Mabineng at the Bioscope. Um, it's like picking up a Zapiro annual from any given year. I think he's done 20 or 21 of these things. And by going through and looking at the cartoons you relive that year, you can relive 20 years of South African history, 20 years of Nando's yep. through their advertising. Yeah. It's genius. Great. And there's a good juxtaposition then between the current affairs of the time yes, and the advertising exactly that he was that, feeding yeah, off. Yeah. And, and, it's called, and, and the zeitgeist, the evolution yeah. of, the, of the zeitgeist through uh, you know, the new dispensation, as they say. And it's called? Pluck. It's pluck, yes. Bravery and what you do to a chicken. Absolutely. So clever. Double meaning. Double meaning. Oh, double entendre. <laughs> now listen, let's do a, a single entendre and that's your zero. The zero first. Let's do zero oh, first. Okay, okay. Well, I'm going to play you the, the soundtrack, just the audio of a... TV commercial that's been on air over the last month or so, and I'd like you to oh, I've just spot my spot my uh, my build up because I'm going to ask you to uh, guess in what decade it was flighted. But it's actually been flighted now, but it's so like the 1960s. Yeah. And then we'll we'll listen to it and then uh, be reminded just how old fashioned it is. I hate finding a stain after I wash, especially these tough ones. Never to wash over again. What? It's just my clothes are spotless. How? Well, washing powder alone can't remove all stains. Simply add one scoop of Vanish Power O2 powder to your usual detergent. Its Power Lift formula contains oxy action to remove even tough stains. Impossible. I can't believe that the stain is really gone. It's possible with Vanish. Trust pink. Forget stains. Okay, so TV came to South Africa in 1976. Advertising came in about 1980 or thereabouts. Yeah, 1982. Well, um, <laughs> I mean, it would be considered fairly laborious even then. When I, in the late 70s, I was involved in a TV shoot for a washing powder called Darto, which was a Henkel product in those days. And uh, we made a commercial not dissimilar to this, the, the housewives discussing their intimate washing secrets. And uh, it was thought to be a tired concept even then. But this is on air right at the moment. And you've got two young uh, housewives discussing the problems they have getting the stains out of their family shirts. Okay, okay. In reality, getting stains out of family shirts is a pain in the neck. In reality, Vanish does a good job on collars and cuffs, especially um, if you wear your shirts aggressively. It's a decent product and it is a household problem. I'm not saying it's not truthful. I'm simply saying it is... It's a boring old advert. It's a boring <laughs> ad which, which wraps the brand up in this old-fashioned uh, imagery. They've got... Even the two housewives who are talking have each got a washing machine in the same room. <laughs> <laughs> because one was using Vanish and one wasn't. It is the most artificial construct you can come across. <laughs> and I think that whoever owns Vanish should be thinking, how do we make this a bit more contemporary? And how do we get our ad agency to... I suspect the ad agency was bullied into doing this. It's, I, that doesn't look to me like an agency-led solution. We should get our marketing solution. director to... Yeah. Vanish. Oh, Bruce, you're, you're on form tonight. Hey, look at that. I made an effort, special one. And then, let's go to Heroes, because I find your Heroes far more uplifting. Well, there used to be uh, an old guide to surviving life in the Royal Navy that said, if it moves, salute it. If it doesn't, paint it. And I think that would be something you could transfer to, to, to modern um, advertising life, saying, you know, if it moves, um, that, then read it or something. But if, if it doesn't, slap an ad on it. Because almost any piece of spare real estate in the urban environment seems to be made into an ad, which uh, occasionally is a good idea. Um, I can think of, of some like, uh, there used to be a, I think, 
something called Hotbox, which advertised on the inside of the lid of a pizza box. When you're feeling particularly good about life, you would, you would order a pizza and there was an ad. It got you in the right frame of mind. But now I want to imagine that you are on a mango flight and you're sitting there and, and you're thinking, I'm a bit hungry, I'm a bit thirsty, and you see the trolley coming towards you. You think, oh, good, but I'm not quite sure what I'm going to have. And then you pull down the tray to put your purchases on and the tray is a large advertisement for Pringles, a decal that takes up the whole of the tray. And I just think that timing of that, just as you're thinking, I am a bit peckish, what shall I get? You prepare yourself and whoop, right at the very last second, an ad appears to, uh, to persuade you to go towards Pringles. I, I would Very clever. I, I would love to see some statistics there. Had Pringles been on the trolleys before... They put those ads on on the trays and after, because I'm absolutely certain it is that trigger in that moment of indecision, in that moment of desire for some something salty and fatty and not very good for you. Um, what can I smash into my face? Oh, I'll do that because you've told me I must do this. It's what they call the last few seconds of marketing because you, there is once you've overlooked that as a purchase, they're gone. But if you can remind people about the the benefits of the brand, literally as you're as you're being served it then fantastic um it, it's really good i mean we've seen lots of use of advertising particularly the low-cost carriers and mango is one of those um but i think the ryanairs of the world and, and those have put on the headrests for example um hertz used to advertise a lot on the headrests now i'm not sure that getting into onto an airplane and sitting and putting my head against a, a hertz branded headrest is going to get me when i go out of the airport no, to go to the right. hertz and, and to hire the car it's a brand awareness and it's fine and it's yellow and it's bright and it's connected its travel but ugh. and if you fly Ryanair it's like being on an airborne Istanbul bazaar you just get bombarded with offers and messages and buy some lotto tickets and and do this deal and here's a hotel here's a car all coming through the audio system so there's no escape from that that really is a, a, a taking a good thing and pushing it much too far I, mean, I haven't been on Ryanair for a while I've only ever been on EasyJet and Ryanair and I found EasyJet a lot less offensive Yes. I mean, yeah. as, as a commercial proposition, sure, you're flying for £3.99 somewhere very far away, but boy, you pay for it. <laughs> <laughs> Andy Rice with Heroes and Zero, some really nice ones there this evening. Um, the idea that you can get marketing delivered at the last second make you, to help you make your purchase decision. And Andy highlighting those trays on mango flights. If you've been on one recently, you'll know exactly what he's talking about. Um, and then um, the Zero being Vanish, um, he would like that ad to disappear off screens. And then, of course, the big one and this is the news of the week one and a quarter hours well spent if you go to the bioscope in Maboneng there is the Encounters Film Festival at the moment um, and there is a movie there called Pluck and it is all about the courage of the advertising campaigns of the last two decades of Nando's and how they've followed South Africa's zeitgeist and created a huge relevance for themselves beyond what is just normally seen as advertising. The Money Show. The Africa Business Report. Welcome to Lee Kasumba, the host of Africa State of Mind, who is preparing um, to do her her walkabout. And her next walkabout, of course, is going to be in Ethiopia. Are you packed? Are your bags packed? Are you ready to go? There's a song in there somewhere, Lee. 
There definitely is a song in there. Honestly speaking, I think I've been packed for Ethiopia since the campaign started. Um, I, I think Ethiopia is one of those countries, like I just want to discover it and find out more, find out about their coffee industry, find out about where mankind started and all of that, and also some of the business, of course. Uh, but my producer, one of my producers, just recently went on holiday and went via Addis and um, raved not only about the airline, about Ethiopian, which is um, seriously taking over African skies, but also about the airport that's being built in, in Addis. And there's a huge facility there. They're being very serious about turning it into a very significant hub. Yeah, they definitely are. I mean, I think Ethiopia has done quite a few strategic things. So firstly, you know, the whole visa on arrival process for tourists, for African um, passport holders, which is great so they can increase tourism. But then also, I think in general, with the expansion of the airport and also with, with their, their airline, they have acquired, I believe it's Malawi's um, aircraft as well. They have acquired from there. But what they're trying to do and what they are doing with Ethiopian Airlines is that they have a lot of routes. They have great, um, you know, they have great Dreamliners and, and all the rest. And they also are trying to to make it a hub so that people can travel through Ethiopia versus if you're in South Africa and you want to go you know to to a different part of the world you normally have to travel from South Africa to Dubai you know then Dubai to the next place you know if you use if you use like a different airline for example so Ethiopian airline um, and the airport and the country as a whole is trying to make Ethiopia a hub and I think that they're really succeeding at that so we we are going to be looking at speaking to somebody about that and just to see how is that they're going mm. about it because they're the only profitable airline in the continent at the moment <laughs> yeah well i mean but we johanna's got a hundred thousand rand bet on the fact that he can do this in a couple of years too so <laughs> we, we we remain we remain hopeful now listen um oil comes from angola um, oil comes from nigeria oil doesn't come from kenya does it no, it doesn't. But um, quite recently, it seems since um, 2012, there has been um, an exploration of oil in a, in a county in Kenya called Turkane County, County. Sorry, And basically, um, just a few days ago, they pretty much um, had a flag off event and they've sent the first um, few um, trucks, uh, truckloads of, of crude oil um, from, from this county to Mombasa because Mombasa is obviously where the port is. And, you know, what I find really interesting about this is that um, President Kenya was there as well as the deputy president was there as well and they really are looking at oil becoming one of the major contributors in Kenya um, you know with regards to the economy uh, that's really good news and then I mean can uh, one wonders whether or not you can sort of regionalize um, a, a brand if you were in South Africa we, we like to have made in South Africa but you know, made in Cape Town made in Mpumalanga made yeah. in Limpopo um, Nigerians are trying this and it seems to be working quite well yeah, so there's a there's a state in Nigeria called Abia State, and basically in Nigeria in general, um, in the state there's a city called Aba. So in Nigeria, there's always this thing that if you want anything made or duplicated or anything like that, you can get it done in Aba. And this is in the eastern part of Nigeria, um, you know. And so basically, what's happened now is that the governor, who's been governor for about three years, has launched he launches campaign which is called Made in Aba. You know, so taking what was seen as a negative and making it a positive, and also trying to boost um, the leather. And, and shoe garment industry in there, you know, in, in that is region as well as in terms of agriculture and all the rest. And so what they've done is that they've really um, started to promote it a lot more. And the campaign has brought an estimated 1 million jobs into Abia State, you know, which is really great. I think it's a great win. They also have um, about 300,000 uh, 300, um, apprentices in the different markets that they've also, that have also gotten jobs. And also one of the big things about doing business in Nigeria um, in general is 
power supply and having constant power supply. And they've launched a private sort of um, power project where they're basically looking at ensuring that all of the, the shoe factories and all the rest will have continuous um, continuous power the whole time. And the pilot project so far for the first six months, they've had about 2,000 shops which have gone on with, with 24-hour power supply, which is quite a big thing if you're in Nigeria. Well, no, so sure. I mean, I mean, yeah. it, it, we, we know through load shedding how disruptive the loss of yeah. power can be, even if it is an inconvenience. But when you're trying to run a business and make a living and you've got no power, it, it's crippling. Um, some people, some people, very unkindly call Abia the China of Nigeria yeah. or the the China, and that's that's from its propensity to take other people's ideas. Yeah, it, it, well, I think it's from that, but I think it's also from the fact that things can be made really fast. So according to the governor's office, you know, um, they said that an average of 2 million shoes are being exported from a beer state outside, which is quite a huge amount. And also just with regards to China, they, they even have sent some of um, some shoemakers from this area, um, from the state into China to, to upskill them a bit more. And they're importing a lot of um, machinery into the, into the state from China in order to be able to put them, you know, on a bigger level. And I I think one of the big things is that we see a lot is that if you're not in the main state or like the main city, you kind of get left behind. And by the governor making sure that, you know, there are jobs in, in the in the shoe industry, that there are jobs in poultry and, and farming and all the race and agriculture, he really is doing a really good job with regards to ensuring that the youth stay there and they develop that area as well. Otherwise, you know, they'll end up with a situation where everybody will either be in Lagos or they will be um, in Abuja or they'll be in Port Harcourt. So it really is good to see um, that, that this governor is, you know, taking making a stand for the people of Abia and also that whole made in other states. I think everybody loves, you know, the, the whole the whole title and the tag. And, and I'm sure you know about the Nigerian soccer kit. It was sold out pretty fast. And all of these tweets came out and everybody said, oh, don't even worry about it. Abba already has a version. <laughs> <laughs> so it was like, don't worry, we have the made in Abba version. So I think it's just great to see how they, you know, something that is lo- that is pretty local um, in Nigeria, they really are making it something that will work for the people. You know, what's so important about this and what the, the great lesson that we're getting from ABBA and from ABIA um, is the fact that you can create localized economies that, you know, in an age of massive urbanization and where urban areas simply can't cope under the huge flux of people looking for economic opportunity, if you can put economic opportunity where people are, then there is an incentive to stay in your home area where there is economic opportunity. People don't choose to leave home. They yeah. often leave home because they feel they have to. And, and, you know, and when you say that, it reminds me of uh, Kumasi, when we had spoken a bit about Kumasi when I was out there, they did, they're doing exactly the same thing, where they're making sure that they create opportunity for people in those, you know, in those cities and in those states to make sure that they don't leave home. And I think that that's really testament, and it, it, it's going to be breeding ground for growing a kind of a better economy around the continent as a whole, if other countries um, kind of follow in, in these sort of footsteps. My thanks to you, Lee Kasumba, the host of Africa State of Mind. Um, oh, well, before I let you go, when, when are you off to Ethiopia? I'm off to Ethiopia on the 17th of June, but in my head, I'm there tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Lee Kasumba, Africa State of Mind, in her mind, in, and she's in the zone for Africa State of Mind. Lee Kasumba, um, listen to her podcast. She tells some fantastic stories, speaks to some fantastic people, and goes on some extraordinary travels. And Santa Bank is going to be sending her off there in the next uh, two weeks or so. Um, she'll be jetting off on Ethiopia, I think on Ethiopian, uh, to go and look for herself and learn all about this 
this uh, about this fantastic country, Ethiopia, which is taking the world by storm and really is boxing above its weight from an economic point of view um, and is, is doing incredibly well. Uh, looking forward to hearing Lee Kasumba's stories all the way from Ethiopia. In a couple of minutes' time, I'm going to introduce you to two guys, one of whom you know if you watch ENCA. His name is Nicholas Bauer um, and Mikhail Luptak. Um, they're both the co-founders and directors of Dlala Njer, a tourism business which uses local suppliers and it encourages people to get a different perspective on inner city Johannesburg, particularly in the area around Hillbrow where they both live and um, where they both lived for some time. They were both residents at various points of Ponty, which is the tall cylindrical tower block um, in uh, just off Joe Slovo Drive, of course, um, in, in Hillbrow and you get great views of Ellis Park and great views down towards Kent. Kensington and Eastgate and if you get up high enough of course then you get the great views over the whole north and on a clear day you can see UNISA from up there so um, it's uh, remarkable views remarkable stories to be told and how it is that you change perceptions of a place that people have very fond memories of but are terrified to go back to and for the people who live there a sense of pride in a community which is simply quite extraordinary all of that is coming up in the next couple of minutes the money show the science of it's the science of i don't know what really i mean it's the science of inner city development it's the science of broadening your mind it's the science of changing your perceptions it's the science of just uh, talking to two guys who showed us a good time 10 days ago as we went on a, a fabulous walkabout of hillbrow um it started at ponty the, the 1970s circular tower block it dominates the skyline of Hillbrow. You can't miss it. You go down Joe Slovo Drive, used to be Harrow Road, and just before you get to Ellis Park, it's there on your right-hand side. It's, it's massive. You can't miss it. It was built as luxury flats, turned into a slum, and now it's back on the way up, uh, as are many, many parts of Hillbrow, into creating really nice, affordable accommodation, well-located for people who work in the city of Johannesburg and who work in Hillbrow, even people who work anywhere along the M1 motorway, frankly, um, it's a very good launch pad into into the northern suburbs as well. Now, two guys accentuating the positive of inner city renewal without pretending that it's all peachy and perfect. They don't make that pretense at all. Nicholas Bauer, best known for being tossed about like a cork on television. <laughs> um, he's got a smile on his face as big as the night you were being thrown around by Zimbabweans, like you, <laughs> you were some kind of rag doll in Bramford And when Robert Mugabe decided, well, when the army decided Robert Mugabe wasn't going to be president of Zim anymore. Indeed. Uh, one that's, one that's, of the highlights. That's that, you, and no, that wasn't Bramfontein. That, that was Hillbrow. Was that Hillbrow? That was Hillbrow. But you had a great time. I know. It was a fantastic evening. Fantastic experience and one that will live with me for a very long time. That's home. Yeah, it is, pretty much. I mean, quite literally that that uh, celebration, because a lot of people were like, oh, pandemonium protests, Zimbabweans are going crazy. It was a massive outpouring of... You know, just relief. Um, and it was the biggest party that I've ever experienced in Hillbrown. I've been there for quite a few New Year's. Uh, and it was quite literally uh, not even a half a block from where I live. I live across the road from the Telcom Tower. Um, that is what they used to call the J.G. Stradom Tower, the Hillbrow exactly. Tower, the exactly. Telcom Tower. Uh, and Michael Luptak, they call him Loopy. Um, you guys, did you guys grow up together? Oh, gosh, yeah, we, we met did, in church. Actually. Um, That's a long on, time on ago. The, on, the, on, on the Wusrand. 
on the bus ride. <laughs> yeah, uh, on the other side of the train tracks, you know, the wrong side. <laughs> and, and so after that, Hillbrow was that you came up in the world. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Somewhat, yeah. Yeah. Now, so, I mean, Lupi, when did you guys come? Sort of, did you guys move from the West Rand together with this mission to go and live an alternative kind of life for two white guys from 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 the West Rand, just to broaden your horizons? Was the only place you could afford to live? What was the mission? Yeah, I think uh, Nicholas was the first to arrive. Obviously, he's a journalist so he's uh, not well yeah (laughs) um so he was sent by an editor to go and do a story and then uh the story came out but it was this really cliched kind of prostitute gangster criminality drugs kind of story you know um and instead he left with a signed lease of which i attended the first housewarming of you know of his apartment that he that he moved into and as they say i suppose the rest was history i mean why wouldn't you want to live in a beautifully situated north-facing apartment overlooking, uh, you know, the Hall of Josie. It was just superb. You know, so you went on a story and left with a lease. Um, and that apartment that you occupied, which is on the 50... First floor. 51st floor, um, does have those panoramic views. And you see all the way to the West Rand, to the sun sets, and all the way to the east, past the airport, to the sun rises. And you've got that beautiful aspect of the whole of the north of Johannesburg at your feet. But Ponty's been through many iterations. Mm. I mean, when it was built, luxury flats, that was the vision. And they were luxurious, and there were triple-story triple penthouses. If you lived if you lived there by the way um in the 1970s if you lived there in the 80s the 90s and the noughties please give us a call on 011-883-0702-021-446-0567 you've had a bit of a history lesson from the architect a guy called rodney groskopf who i'm told via our SMS line, today's his birthday. Oh, no way. Oh. Happy birthday. No, no, okay, 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 don't turn everybody off. <laughs> <laughs> um, you do many things so well. That's not one of them. <laughs> Rod, Rod, Rodney Groskopf, um, he, he was the architect and one of the last surviving people who involved in the construction. What did he tell you about this, this huge cylindrical tower? Well, you know, we spoke uh, off air about the things that you can and can't say on radio. And I suppose this is the ones that does make the grade. He called it what his gigantic erection. Yeah. Isn't that right? So Rodney Groskopf, when he spoke to us about it, he, you know, a lot of people thought that it had to do with the post-postmodernism architecture at the time that they decided to put this concrete toilet roll holder on the hill in Johannesburg. But it actually had to do with a, a bylaw, uh, Bruce. It had a bylaw uh, that stated during the time that you needed two sources of light and uh, air in uh, both your kitchen and your bathroom. Uh, and in terms of bang for buck, that was the design that they came out. And it was a group of architects led by a guy called Manfred Harmer, who's no longer around. Rodney Groskopf is the uh, last surviving men- member. And uh, the lead designer was a guy called Manny Feltman. And yeah, I mean, like just, just like you described, you know, the... the apartment that I moved into was actually the first floor of what was a three-story apartment, which was kitted out with wine cellars and saunas and the creme de la creme of inner city living, really. But by the time the 80s rolled around, um, you know, the apartheid government took a look around and said, well, Hillbrow's a hell of a lot different to the rest of South Africa. And the fact that it's extremely cosmopolitan, so you have uh, expats from all over the world coming in and working. So like German engineers mixing with English bankers and uh, white South Africans of the time, but they were also mixing with, uh, with people of color. Uh, and it was one of the very first places in South Africa that had uh, dance halls with mixed race licenses. And the apartheid government took a look around. They're like, no, 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 you know, white and black people are mixing. Uh, let's gray, let's call this area a gray area. Not very creative. They redlined it. They called it a gray area. Yeah. What does that mean, Lupi? 
So basically it means that uh, the apartheid government, because of the level of nonconformity and like rebellion that existed in these areas, actually a lot of our political leaders today found refuge in these areas because they had this this power to talk and not be prosecuted. You know, Some of the ANC houses are still around Yeovil at the moment as well. So what the redlining meant was that government's response to this nonconformity meant that they were going to turn off the economic taps to the area, which meant that they stopped a lot of the infrastructure funding. They stopped uh, looking after the parks. And then that's where Hillbrow slowly started to become the poster child for urban decay. You know, uh, and the perception that South Africans dearly love to hold on to because it just sells more, you know. Uh, absolutely. I mean, the Hillbrow is a basket case. Hillbrow is a waste of time. You don't go to Hillbrow, and that's where you go to get killed or you know, do do all kinds of stuff that you wouldn't tell your mother about. Um, says Yvonne Gillespie, who emailed me a little earlier, I lived in the Phelan's Hotel in Hillbrow from 1963 to 1966 when I married. It was a great experience. Totally safe. Restaurants, coffee bars, shopping, etc. My husband sang folk with Des and Dawn Lindbergh. Who, who used to be, who were the big entertainment in, in the hood in those days. Um, uh, Carlington Motors in Hillbrow has a fantastic garage uh, and the service our cars, we never had a complaint, and then the wheels came off. Um, now, I would like to discuss, I mean, I, I responded to Yvonne earlier and I said, you know, the wheels have been found. Not all of the wheels have been reattached, but we know where the wheels are, and there are at least two of the wheels that are on. Um, you can't drive it yet, necessarily. Um, but there is an extraordinary resurgence of energy in Hillbrow, which we want to talk about in just a bit. But Ponty went from being these luxury flats to at one point having like 10,000 residents. It was built for 800 and had 10,000. That inner tube was six stories of... 15. 15 stories of filth. Mm-hmm. It must have been horrendous. Oh, indeed. Indeed. I mean, look, the residents of that time, from a period of about 1994 to 2002, when it was declared the first vertical urban slum uh, in South Africa, and I think on the, on the, on the continent as well, um, you know, 15 stories of, of trash piled into the middle, no running water, no electricity. And obviously there wasn't a census at the time, but estimations go from 8,000 to 10,000 people calling Ponty um, home. And this was when, you know, you heard all the stories about the underworld, the poster child of the underworld in uh, in Johannesburg, uh, and you know it's got it's got a crazy story. And I stayed there for three and a half years, Loopy for four and a half, and many a time I thought, geez, the stories that these walls could tell if they could talk, but. Gosh, I'm really lucky that they don't talk because the things they must have seen. <laughs> Completely. Um, and, but, but both of you have moved out, but you've moved out because you can't buy in there. You Both both of you wanted to invest. Both of you wanted to buy. Lupi, mm. you live near Ellis Park. Troyville. Uh, in Troyville. There we go. Uh, and and, uh, and you, then, Nicholas, live just around the corner from the, from the, from the Telcom Tower. Yeah. yeah. Who owns Ponty? Is- Kempston Truck and Hire Group. Um, it's the biggest privately owned company in South Africa. And, uh, you know, it is a bit jarring every now and again. People wonder, well, what's the biggest truck and hiring group in South Africa know about owning Ponty? But yeah. nonetheless, it, it uh, entered their portfolio after a bad debt in the 90s. Tony Cottrell. Yeah, Tony yeah. Cottrell. Okay, Tony, I met him in Davos, of all places. Really? No, not Davos, I beg your pardon, uh, with Warren Buffett um, uh-huh. in Omaha, Nebraska. Oh, he, right. was, he was on, not Davos, it's the other Davos, <laughs> where, where the other rich people go. Um, and uh, yeah, I met Tony Cottrell there. He was there to go and listen to, it was about two years ago, to go and see the, the, the Oracle of Omaha speak. Um, so he owns it, and it's, it's all let, is it? And, and there's a property management company. You guys started a business called Dlala and Jay. What's Dlala and Jay mean? Uh, Dlala and Jay is actually an Isi Zulu word for just play. 
and uh, we started it as a residence project because we realized that not only were our apartments affordable, but also the retail spaces downstairs were quite competitive when we compared them to other retail markets. And um, we just wanted to do something on the side, you know. We were we had a bit of spare money and we wanted to invest into something, but we didn't really think um, it was going to take off too much. So we ran past a few ideas like a pie shop and a laundry and things like that didn't really take off. But then we were introduced to someone by the name of Lucky Manike, who at the time was uh, an agent uh, who was like responsible for letting out some of the properties. And he told us that there's about four or 500 children in the building and all of their parents were quite hesitant to let them play on the streets, obviously because of these kinds of harsh realities that exist out there. So they were forced to play within these horribly uninspiring and brutalist kind of uh, corridors and hallways of Ponty. Um, and we thought to ourselves that, uh, that, that, that that wasn't very cool. I mean, especially if you're a youngster growing up and you're looking for opportunities and you're doing stuff. So initially we just opened an arcade, you know, and uh, we, we, it, it was just coin-operated machines that ranged from foosball to uh, arcade games to a few pool tables and things like that. But we also realized that the kids in the building were like hella smart, you know. They, uh, we had a strong Zimbabwean community who lived with us, and they, they, they slowly found out that one of the Zimbabwean coins, I can't remember which one it was, was a very similar, <laughs> if not the same size as the coins that were being used to to uh, play games. So although we thought the shop was humming on a daily basis, <laughs> at the end of the month when we came to enter, you know, all the different games and stuff, we had found that all the money was negligible, you know. No. So, yeah, I mean, that was part of the story too because we had to kind of subsidize a lot of the operational expenditure of the yeah. arcade through our full-time salaries. And then it just, it was tough, you know. It's tough. But nowadays they do lots of team building. They do lots of corporate events. They get teams of people in, school kids coming in and saying, come, let's go for a walk around Hillbrook. Got a call from John Robbie today to say, oh, why are you talking to the guys all about Ponty? And he was there with you, with people from the National Treasury. And you actually went up the Hillbrow Tower. And the idea was to get the National Treasury to think about the space differently. And that was a really interesting story. Let's talk about that in just a second. Cabello is driving. You shouldn't be texting while you're driving, Cabello, saying Ponty covers the skyline of Joburg. I can even see it as I drive out of Soweto now. Um, and then some other comments coming through this evening. It says, Caroline, I'm 60 years old. I own five properties in Hillbrow. It's a fabulous investment, not a dangerous place, but you do have to be streetwise. That's Caroline. Uh, we'll talk about that in just a second as well. The Money Show is brought to you by... By Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. The thing that struck me as we walked through Hillbrow on Saturday 10 days ago and just went through the streets of Hillbrow and uh, admired a lot of the infrastructure that was there, looked at some of the dilapidated buildings, went to a hijacked building and went to a building that had previously been hijacked, which is now full of excrement and all sorts of other terrible things. But you get a sense of a wasted opportunity or a lost opportunity. I'm not sure if it's wasted or lost because I was blown away by the sense of optimism on the streets of Hillbrow of the people who live there in these blocks of flats. And people are paying pretty hefty rentals to live there. Well, indeed. I mean, you know, Bruce, I would argue Hillbrow is really uh, an example of the magnitude of opportunity that the city of gold has to offer. Because, like, while you have these stereotypical stories about gangs, drugs, prostitution, crime... It's all there. You have the, yeah, it is. But it's living cheek and jowl next to amazing spirit of entrepreneurship, amazing spirit of determination, where people arrive with nothing but the clothing on their backs, but build themselves up 
and build themselves up slowly uh, but surely and, and really excel in the so-called New York of Africa. Uh, Lupi, tell me about the wall where it's like the, 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 the most incredible um, sort of classifieds I've ever mm. seen in my uh, life. Yeah. Offline version of so, Gumtree. Uh, the offline yeah. version of Gumtree is bits of paper stuck to a wall. Yeah, so basically it's situated very close to an area where a lot of immigrants get into Johannesburg from various parts of the continent. And uh, it's obviously, there's a spaza shop there where you can hook yourself up with a SIM card and things like that. But the really interesting part is Hillbrow has a lot of... Uh, really good accommodation and sometimes it's being used in in different and interesting ways but uh, the wall that you're talking about is basically just an area where people use like just chewing gum and they take a a leaflet or a flyer where they're advertising a room in there it's almost like an airbnb for hillbrow really uh (laughs) where people advertise some of some rooms in their own homes where uh, you can stay to help pay some of the rent and as a result uh, there are some buildings in hillbrow that are somewhat overcrowded uh sometimes up to 10 or 12 people staying in uh, one apartment um and if you take the square meterage or the amount of rental that's kind of generated per square meter you would be very competitive to some of the areas here in Santon, surprisingly enough, yeah. because there's maybe 12 people each paying, you know, one or two or 3,000 rand. Boom, if you've got a, an 80 square meter, 100 square meter apartment, boom, you might as well be on Gwen Lane. <laughs> <laughs> no apartments on Gwen Lane. That's the home of the Johannesburg Stock Exchange. <laughs> um, but, but, uh, Doesn't white monopoly capital live there? Uh, so we're told. Um, the, <laughs> there were two old ladies sitting on a bollard nearby to this offline gum tree. They've got a very special job. Um, you have to recall my memory. The, the verifica- they're like the verification agency. They're like the Fitch and the Standard & Poor's of, <laughs> of, of Hillbrow. Of, of Hillbrow. Uh, well, aren't they the people who verify um, what goes on? They've got a cell phone, and if you want to phone, they will make the call and say, yep, looks pretty decent. You can, you know, you can give them an interview. Sort yeah, of I, mean, the, I mean, just like Nicholas said, there's a wealth of opportunity, and people are finding really interesting ways to help others or to even make a bit of income for themselves. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, those, those, those places do exist exist those 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 ladies do exist they do a fantastic job you know um but at the same time i think a lot of the time people just phone and they say look i'm looking for a place to stay and it just happens just like anywhere Mm. else you know i suppose that's what we really sell is that you know the the the, like normality of hillbrow has been forgotten you know yeah i mean but but what you do then is you you bring people in and you get them to change their minds about an area that they otherwise might not have gone to or would have avoided like the plague um with those guys from the national treasury for example it's saying, guys, this is a missed opportunity. I mean, um, one looks at the inner city of Johannesburg and there's lots of urban regeneration going, but Hillbrow's already got the infrastructure and the roads and the, the blocks of flats, many of which could do with a bit of a spruce. Um, lots of opportunity. Indeed. And, uh, I mean, the Telkom Tower is, is the greatest example of stakeholder misalignment that you could ever think of. Explain uh, that. Well, Telcom Tower is owned by oh, the Telcom, mm-hmm. which is a state-owned enterprise, or at least partly. Um, and... The city of Johannesburg has made efforts in the past decade or so to try and re-launch um, the Telkom Tower precinct. And now it's just sitting as a wide, gaping, open goal waiting to be scored that will completely transform the area around it in Hillbrow. And at the base of that is uh, an old post office, a red brick post office, which exactly. has been sealed up and abandoned. I can only just imagine inside there, there must be some really nice embroidered wood. There must be really nice. Um, and I kind of feel that there's a Saturday morning market vibe 
which could happen there a little bit um, you know like the, the these markets that have sprung up all over the place they're in Joburg they're in they're in Cape Town um, there's a Bramfontein market why not a Hillbrow market there is there's got to be an opportunity and Mark Bounds you could just give them that to run well, the market from true very 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 true <laughs> you're not using it not only that but it's also 800 meters from the constitutional hill yeah. So, I mean, the nodes that you can connect within the inner city that it's uh, alongside things that are already happening. It strikes me, though, that where people in, get very comfortable in Santon, people who get very comfortable in Rosebank, people who get very comfortable wherever they're sitting in their, in their ivory towers, need to do this. Oh, of course. Of course. Hands down. I mean, look, uh, we are the highest rated uh, tour operator on TripAdvisor within the Johannesburg inner city. Um, we originally started by only having tourists come and visit us, then intrepid Joburgers. South Africans then, don't do walking tours. They're the well, best thing no, you can no. ever do in any city you ever it, visit it, anywhere. Exactly, exactly. That's changed though. And, uh, you know, we've also branched out as well into various other tourism markets, but we also do corporate training as well. Because um, at the end of the day, we live in the most unequal society on earth. And, uh, you know, a little bit of understanding... Uh, as to how a market works on, a, on the ground is absolutely invaluable from a, a corporate perspective. So do you get people like, Lupi, do you get, uh, you get guys from 135 Ravonia Road, which is Nedbank across the road? <laughs> um, um, uh, do, you, do you get them coming in in their, in their pinstripe suits and their tires and their brogues yeah, I mean, uh, look, and being uh, a little bit frightened, clutch, yeah, it, clutching their briefcases? Yeah, I mean, we, we, we have an interesting business as well that's centered around curating experiences for business. Uh, which helps us kind of isolate and build on leadership qualities that we think are required in the newer South Africa. So um, I've often had the privilege of working with some really interesting bankers and lawyers and all types of industry. Um, and we, we, we generally get a brief to create a lot of discomfort because that's where all the magic happens, we're told. So, um, so we take people very much out of their comfort zones and we introduce them to you know, the people that they're selling their products to and some of the employees that may be working in their office. And basically, it just creates a, a beautiful empathetic lens to doing like socially responsible decision making as a business where we understand that, you know, there has to be a shared value approach to everything that we do in South Africa. Um, because today, I mean, at least for the last 30 or 40 years in South Africa, business has been predominantly you know, big and capitalistic and profit generating and, in, you know, expanding internationally. And I, I, I just feel that sometimes the youth and a lot of important things in South Africa have been forgotten. So the real objective with the immersions and the corporate leadership programs that we have is to just kind of, you know, have the, the difficult discussions about gender and race and um, equality, you know, and have those on the streets with people. You know, we're very firm believers that learning in South Africa in 2018 happens out of your office and in the real world. And often South Africans are the most insular people, especially the guys holding the big corporate positions. Um, so we're there to rattle them up a bit, you know. Does it work? I, I believe so. Um, for me, the greatest thing that has happened to us is, is not the almost half a million rand that we spend in Hillbrow on an annual basis in terms of our suppliers and supply chain. It's not the multitude of opportunities that we give to the kids in our community center, but it's that actual change you see on someone's face when they arrive and they're completely out of their comfort zone. And they are, I mean, John Robbie, I don't know if he's listening, but he, he told me at the end of our tour, you know, I decided to take my watch off before we went on this tour. It's and not even a nice watch. <laughs> But by the end of the tour, Bruce, they're in a Shabin or they're on the corner and they're taking selfies with the locals and there's just, you know, 
you can't you can't measure that impact for me to just change people's minds. Nicholas Bauer, he is uh, you'll know him from ENCA and his mate from the West Rand, Michael Luptak, known as Loopy. They ran, run this business called Ndalanjer, and it is all about changing perceptions, all about shaking you out of your comfort zone. And it's really interesting, and it's something you really should do. Honestly, you should go and do it. The Money Show is brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. Karima is standing by in Johannesburg. Koketso is standing by in Cape Town. I'm standing by to say goodnight. Until tomorrow, bye-bye.